0: Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues and communities. this episode, I once again got to chat to Monique Luntman to further our conversation around resilient leadership, as well as how to get the best out of your team in these more testing and difficult times. Without further ado, let's get right into the interview. I wanted to touch on something there, which I think you're kind of alluding to already, which is the link between resilience and problem solving, because, you know, as managers and leaders, we're constantly solving various problems in the business. And in times where resilience is so key, um, the, you know, often the old historic way of leadership or management was that the leader or the manager had to have all the answers or they had to know what to do in the difficult times. And it seems that there's obviously been a big shift to democratizing the problem-solving process where you bring in the, the different perspectives and insights of your team to help solve the problem. You know, have you found that, that in, in the places that you've worked with and companies you've worked with, is becoming more of a trend where where the leader is more happy to share the process of solving the problem or coming up with the idea that's going to solve the problem rather than that person having to know the answers just by themselves?
1: No, I think um, it is, it's slowly starting in some uh, industries more than others, but... Um, it's a whole new type of leadership, and that is a type of leadership where vulnerability and courage comes in. the vulnerability for a leader to say, hey, I don't have all the answers, but together we have them. Mm-hmm. And that is about radically opening up, uh, well, as you know, my heart in the boardroom um by actually allowing this vulnerability and also the courage to say, I don't have all the answers and, Actually, a lot of research showed that the, the, the managers who show, you know, even times of crisis that with the backbone of steel, like, okay, we kept our cool, we kept our calm. And uh, especially, I did a lot of research on the COVID uh, leadership uh, managing through prices. Actually, it's very interesting. Yes, those leaders were very cool, collected, and calm. Um, but they raised quite a distance to their team because the team did not feel that calm and cool and collective. So they thought their boss, their manager, their CEO is just stone cold eyes. Mm. And you, uh, they asked the managers and said, Hey, but, but how did you let through crisis? I said, well, I was there for my team. I solved the problems when they didn't have the answers. I came up with the answers and I was, you know, I actually, I really did well. Mm. And then, the teams were asked and the distance between them and the teams was actually bigger than before. So if that CEO would have shared with or led with empathy, knowing that, hey, the team is not following up my pace. I'm not showing capacity. I'm just what they're doing is they're just pulling through. And that is not resilience. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is just holding it together. Mm -hmm. And in a problem-solving and a leadership style, if you lead with empathy by knowing, you know, to check in with your team, to touch base with your team, to know what it's for them, especially now with this whole after, well, during pandemic even, all our employees, our customers, our stakeholders, we all suffer from anxiety. The mental health issues are serious. So what people do in a crisis, we close, we go into silo behavior, we retrieve. And solitude and uh, retrieving yourself, that is working against resilience, that's actually undermining resilience. Mm. While at the same time, Um, reaching in to yourself and reaching out. That is where you can lead teams and inspire them and ignite. And that's so important now because we need to rebuild companies Mm -hmm. from the ashes, from this new reality. There is a super change, even in your business, that you'd notice now after the pandemic, your business model has changed because more people are tapped into online.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there's a lot of change to be done. There is a lot of rebuilding, reconnecting. So we need to ignite people's yeah. hearts, and yeah, you know, that's where you actually, as a leader, uh, yes, it's very important to be resilient. But there comes the courage to look the crisis in the eye.
0: Yeah, well, I think what you said there about kind of going, becoming quite insulated, or you know, being spending more time in solitude is so true. You know, I think we see we saw that a lot in COVID is where you know guys sort of batten down the hatches because you know that was their way of coping but at the same time your your impact that you have or the effect that it has on your team is is quite detrimental in 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 terms of the certainty that they feel uh, or lack of certainty they feel rather because they just don't have that communication you know one of the other things that obviously has played out is that staff compliments have gotten smaller because you know they had to downsize and therefore people have to become more cross-competence, you know, in different fields or different areas. Um, and one thing that I have noticed and I wanted to ask your opinion on is, you know, I found that a lot of, uh, because of the impact psychologically of COVID, people became very defensive rather than opportunistic, right? They were, like we've just been saying, they, they went into themselves, they, they weren't taking advantage of situations as best as they could perhaps before COVID. And if you're in a smaller team, it relies on people taking advantage of situations, right? Being opportunistic, being as productive as possible. What do you think, and it might be a difficult question to answer off the bat, but what do you think the process is or getting going to to making people more opportunistic again, being more on the front foot rather than being so defensive?
1: They asked about 150 companies after the pandemic. Um, What actually make people leaders be resilient in this crisis. And we all thought, you know, getting resilience is this growth mindset, which is absolutely true, you know, inviting the welcome, getting an appetite for new experience and all that, but it's actually connection. Mm -hmm. The connections that every person has, uh, and we need to work on, on connections, because it's, uh, they, I read an interview about a doctor in, in New York during COVID. And the doctor said, I didn't know I was so resilient. But what pulled me through was my wife having the support and empathy at home. My assistants actually for making me laugh uh, to a little ghost team. My colleagues for getting perspective. And there were all different kinds of connections that actually built and grown his resilience so it's mm. not his natural fortitude mm. that it was but it's actually the connections and
0: but you know you know moving talking about that, there's there's this and you're speaking about connection there and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that because what I found working especially with some younger or less experienced leaders and managers who, who start going into a role of managing people where before they were perhaps more the front line or they were more just dealing with customers is that you move into this space where you've got to find a line between connecting with your, I want to say subordinates because they're kind of hierarchically speaking they're below you, but, you know, we're all human beings at the end of the day. So you want to find this connection with them, but you've also got to try and maintain this degree of um, order and whatever else you want to call it. And I know that's relatively old school thinking, but, you know, a lot of managers struggle to find that balance between, Building a rapport and a relationship with a subordinate versus keeping that sort of respect or you know the order that kind of keeps the company going. And I was <laughs> I was keen to kind of pick your brain on that because I think it would be very valuable, especially for the younger guys listening to this. Is how do you how do you go about creating that dynamic where you still have the respect, you still have the the understanding, the common objectives, etc., the purpose, but at the same time You can build the relationship with that person in a humanistic way, where it's not like when you get to a certain point, you just shut off and then you don't give any more of your personality. I think there's a fear there of giving too much away, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and somebody
1: at the at the PGA class last two weeks ago said, Well, but the workplace, I I talked about empathy, and he said, But the workplace is not where you can bring in your problems. I said, Well, it's so interesting that you say that, because I know the struggle is real because if you look at emotional intelligence, there's an old belief that it's like bringing on all people's uh, crap to work and spending, you know, dealing with Mm -hmm. all this family drama and there's a business to run. But, and this is slight, it's in every presentation. If you spend a reasonable amount of time in your organization about human emotions, you prevent an unreasonable amount of disruptive behavior. And reasonable means, and that is where the empathy comes in again, you only have to be aware and empathize with the emotion someone is having, not with the actually experience. Hmm. Um, so you don't have to control all that and take, you know, empathy and emotional intelligence leaders is not about adopting each other's problems. No, it's just acknowledging that they're there because they're there anyway. Mm. Um, So rather manage and spend time on a part of the emotion and and the basic human need of being seen, heard, and acknowledged, because that again will lead that people will actually feel psychologically safe. And when they feel psychological safety, they can be more, uh, and then if you want to train them, they can actually do their better, their work better. So if you tap into, let's say, you, you'll spend, every time you run into your company, you see, see somebody, you don't have to make small talk or whatever, but a reasonable amount of time on human emotion means that knowing that it's there, knowing what is there, knowing what's unfolding because if your employees are suffering in any way they're gonna also suffer in the customer engagement or in the experience mm. so by addressing it and acknowledging uh, it is why it's called emotional intelligence because yeah. it's your knowledge and the knowledge you can use to actually run your business better
0: yeah so it's yeah. not
1: weak it's very strategic mm. and it doesn't make your decisions softer or doesn't mean that you're having tea all day with your staff. No, it's Mm. actually very intelligent because at the end of the day, the best business model there is, is letting people master their talents and bring out the best of themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely agreed. I I think that the the fear, if I can speak to, I actually had this conversation with quite a young manager a week ago, the fear is that they've seen people try to win popularity contests as managers. And, you know, that's a dangerous game because if you're always trying to please everyone, you please no one. And I think, you know, a lot of managers have made that mistake where they try and be too democratic or too, you know, um, try and be too popular, I guess, is the the best way I can describe it. And I think it's, it's also about balance. It's about knowing when to and when not to, and, and having that, discretion you know discretion is often something that i feel is never you can never learn it in a textbook you can only learn it through experience
1: so, and if you have empathy in your leadership it's by asking the right questions. so if you want to address uh, a, a mistake and in an empathic way it's like hey i can see you're obviously you're uh you're touched by it uh, what went on uh, shall we look into it? Hey, I can see that normally your behavior really impresses me. Your performance—I can see that you're uh, you're not doing your best performance. What is going on? And one of the—I was on a taxi from Milan uh, to, uh, to the airport, mm. and I had a taxi driver, and I, I don't know. We—we we, we, he asked me what I was what I've been doing, so I told him a bit about the conference, and then he said, "Oh, it's so interesting when he because." He had an employee he was always late and it and as a taxi or transfer business you want obviously uh, people be on time yeah but every day it was like 35 40 minutes and so he started planning like 40 minutes later so he said you have to be there at eight but in fact he had to be there at a quarter plus nine but it didn't improve until he sat with the guy and it was interesting he telling me that because <laughs> um, he sat with the guy and he just asked him, hey, I can see you, you you're you always late. This is impacting the business. Uh, I can also see that you're really stressed yourself. What's going on? And it turned out that um, he just had a little a, a sort of domestic problem where he could not get to a taxi station uh, and there was a water problem. I don't even know what the problem was, but by asking the right question, he got to the core of the problem to really the core of this and and then you get better solutions. Mm. So empathic leadership um, brings you Better solutions for your customers if you tap more into what your customers' needs are, your employees' needs are. Mm. Not by taking all, all on board. It's not your job to mother them, but it actually makes you aware and able to find better solutions. Problem was solved. Solution.
0: You know, it goes it goes back to what you said earlier about you know not living in your own head and not making assumptions. You know, whether it be off the back of COVID or whatever, not not living too much in your own head and making your own assumptions, and rather. You know, one of the guys I follow called Danny Meyer, he, he speaks a lot about this thing of curious intelligence where, you know, there's always a need to kind of want to know someone else's perspective or just just know the truth rather than just make assumptions. You know, and I think it's so so valuable as a leader to not, to eliminate as many assumptions as possible because often bad decision-making comes off, you know, off the back of that, whether it's a misinterpretation of someone's situation or the fact that, that they're just not interested, whereas actually they've got a problem at home, etc. And and it brings me to my next question, which is I'm I'm not sold on the idea that everyone can be improved, but I'm also not sold on the idea that it's a lost cause. What's your feeling on, you know, are there some people that are the right fit and some people that just cannot be the right fit? How do you feel about that in the sense of emotional intelligence, changing your focus, and, you know, potentially whether it works with some employees and not with others?
1: No, I, I it is true some people are not could be that are not the right fit in that ecosystem
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so that is i mean some people will never thrive in a certain ecosystem and um so no matter how much you put into it they'll be still be sort of unhappy but what you still can do as a manager or as a leader is to and this is where i Definitely, I'm a huge fan of appreciative inquiry. And even yesterday, somebody left me a voice note. I actually let it uh, listen. Let my husband listen in. I said, "You gotta listen to this." So there was somebody saying, "Like, hey, um, the 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 lady that she always worked with was really sort of impediment in the process. So it was an anchor for the whole change process. So we talked about it, and I said, well. assume that uh, we're all human and we share human emotions Uh, we are all suffering from anxiety Uh, she used to be very good at her work so why don't you apply appreciative inquiry and having a different conversation with the lady and she did and she uh, so I I said well what you need to do and sometimes to open that conversation uh, because you need knowledge to know if you are the problem, the ecosystem is the problem, or the, the employee is the problem. By inviting appreciative inquiry, that's asking questions from an appreciative point of view. So uh, the question is, and this is what I'm doing in a lot of workshop, what is your go back to a moment of excellence, a moment in your work where you really Nailed it. You rocked it. You burst out of your panty of pride. You know that really that moment when. So I ask people uh, even on uh, in workshops. So let zoom into that feeling and write it down. And then I ask them like a few minutes later, how did that make you feel? And then we write down and things like, oh, I felt pride, acknowledged, seen, uh, uh, strong. So what happens is if you have a conversation with an employee, like a performance review, based on that, you work with positive energy. So instantly you redirect, you refocus your energy to something that was good. It also gets people out of their head, into the hearts, into the feelings. And then you get good energy to work with. Every change strategy, I always start with appreciative inquiry. Because negative energy is very hard to work with and mm. it, it's, it's hardly it's hardly doable, but mm. positive energy. So if you have a conversation with somebody who is not doing their best work, but you or you see it, but by applying appreciative inquiry and that line of questioning, if you go into a team and you want to uh, build better customer experience, for instance, and you ask the team, okay, what's all went wrong? And I say, oh, yeah, we need to do this and this is no. But if you start that session with your team by saying, okay, guys, when did we really excel as a team, as a company? And I say, oh, yeah, this, this, and this. Okay, let's do more of that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then people get ownership and they get accountability. But to go back to that employee who's not a fit, you need info to what's ever holding him back. Mm. So that is your line of empathy or appreciative or whatever. That's your leadership style to get a problem. And then you actually can do an employee a big favor by saying, hey, I think you're very talented, but your talents are not in this cultural fit. Mm. And we all know as a business culture, it's all about who you hire. Yeah. So who you fire. Yeah. So sometimes it's not a fit. And then one person can drain a whole
0: You know, it's, I think from what from my experience, it, it it starts with the fact of actually knowing what your culture is. You know, if you don't know, if you can't identify what your culture is, it's very difficult to hire accordingly, to recruit appropriately. And I think a lot of people, you know, are, are reactive or they, yeah, you know, they, they they work it out after the fact when it's too late for an employee. And that, you know, that's a valuable exercise I think for any company is actually being able to articulate who you are and who you're not as a business, and therefore who you hire. Um, you know, because Yeah, uh, there's so many talented people that are just in the wrong context, as you said, in the wrong ecosystem and therefore they don't reach their potential.
1: And even sometimes you get the right candidates through the door, but your interviewing and recruiting system is not built to search for heart or character, but more built for skill. And then you get a whole different outcome. So I, I help a lot of South African golf clubs with how do you hire for heart mm-hmm. and then the first time I was where do you have to interview yeah in the boardroom I said well you're not getting uh, somebody really sharing about their uh, excitement and the, your line of questions are all things that someone can prepare from the, from the head so you need to ask the right questions mm-hmm. delightful questions you, in your process you also need to make sure that you match if you don't show as a leader, so you're a GM of a club and you want your best golf director. What's important for a golf director is that he can work with the caddies. Let's say if it's a club with caddies. Sure. So first thing that I always recommend is make sure that part of the interaction with caddies is part of your recruitment system. Because now you can see how somebody is, is is it, does it come natural For somebody to reach out, does he easily make connection with the caddies? That's 80% of the job is dealing with caddies.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: So make sure that there is uh, an informal chat with caddies. And then so your recruitment process. So everything what we're discussing now is from resilient, emotional, intelligent, empathy, leadership, vulnerable, courage. Mm. What is all connected? It's the human approach. We need to start seeing employees and our customers as human beings with emotions. And so interesting that you think we always say in empathy, you have to stand in somebody else's shoes. But what really boils down is that we only see 10% in the behavior like the iceberg. So we only see people reacting, but what's below the surface? that is where the magic happens because that's where our beliefs are, our thoughts, our undermining thoughts, Mm. uh, how we grew up uh, defines us. So everything in our business that we need to do from the clients Mm. who have their services, because when they lash out to you or they pile up their lost frustration and expectations, everything, that's also coming from, from those roots. And the deeper you go... Um, beyond titles uh the relation either being an employee or a customer but as a as an equal human relationship then you'll see that we all share human emotions we all know what it feels like mm. to be hurt to be rejected uh we all know what it feels like when somebody doesn't want to be a friend with you anymore uh, mm. the, the grief or and when you connect and and approach your business like that, then you'll sell more products, your conflict is so much easier, because you can act and respond with grace. Because if somebody lashes out to you, or you have the conflict, which you asked me before, mm. then you can respond with grace. Because now you know, if you assess yourself, you know what it's like, then you recognize and you become lesser afraid of other people.
0: True. Yeah. I, I, the more you speak, the more it, it becomes evident in my my head that you you only really connect with someone when you connect with their vulnerabilities or their inadequacies, not with their strengths. You know, that's how how we I think truly get defined one from the, one from the other. We all have insecurities. We all have inadequacies that we feel, but it sits for so many of us so far deep down that, that you don't often. Get to understand what those are, um, and that's why the people that we connect with more easily are the more people, the people that just are able to share it more easily. You know that they, it's more at the surface, and it sounds like your evolution as a person has been like that, where your the feelings, the vulnerabilities that you have have come more to the surface. It's not, it doesn't have to be hidden down anymore because it doesn't. You know, that's no longer necessary, and I think that's I the evolution understand. of many people.
1: When we. Go beyond that level of what we are doing in our jobs but we talk more about our being Mm. rob the magic it's magical because now suddenly somebody said you know oh I needed to hear this I was so struggling and then all of a sudden the whole energy shifts it's cracked wide open and in that open space where this is where you build the foundation of trust the team's it's the glue in the team that is trust so um, especially when you have a new team and you build on okay what do you bring into your work who we are when are you challenged most when are you uh, at your best Mm -hmm. and that's also with regards to becoming more resilient one of the things that I always said people how do I become more resilient know your talents in a crisis So whatever you bring in a team, then we know, okay, we got Mark on the speed dial when we have a communication crisis, because he's always good at, at writing, or we need Paul because he's so good. He keeps us calm. We need Joan because she brings in the humor and we need perspective. And, and the more we allow that messy, imperfect human side of things, um, the, more professional we get when mm. I started to acknowledging my mistakes and I make 10 a day mm. at least I was 10 times better in my work because not holding back of afraid of being mistakes but sometimes I have to apologize you know say like hey I'm sorry I really screwed up but it, you know yeah. it, it was the best oh th- this is a failure I just made because I always tell people, never use the word button and apologize. But, um, yeah, but anyway, it is... Also,
0: it also allows you to kind of just move on with the day. You know, if you can, you know, come uh, be upfront about a shortcoming or a mistake, you know, you acknowledge it, you accountable for it, but then you can also move on. I think people spend a lot of time lamenting over things that you know, have happened and it's water under the bridge, you know, you've got to, you've we've only got as humans, we have only got so much bandwidth, you know, you can't focus on too many different things. And, you know, if it's harboring in the back of your head all the time, it's going to affect your, your performance, your productivity, your impact and everything else. So, I think it's it's good to be able to just come to terms with them as quickly as possible. Um, but but another thing, Monique, that I've also found interesting to hear from various managers and, and and general staff as well is, is this challenge of of getting people to run towards responsibility rather than run away from it. You know, it's this thing of like because people are, and I think it's probably a function of of the fact that people are not in touch in a, in a human sense, but they they're afraid of a certain outcome, so they don't want to take responsibility for that. Task or whatever the case is that rather defer to a manager or defer to someone else, what would your advice be to a manager or leader who's trying to sort of get a team to be more orientated to taking ownership of a problem, whatever the problem or challenge might be, rather than always, and I'll give you a quick example, but often like let's say a member complains about a, you know, something that's imperfect in the club and might be slow service in the kitchen or whatever the case is. And immediately that waiter, for example, will defer to wanting to call the manager or wanting to, you know, so that they can offload it to someone else. So that they don't have, the problem with that is that they don't see the benefit of actually solving the problem and the momentum that that brings. All that they fo- are, are focus on is the problem or the negative energy that comes with the problem not being solved. I don't know if that, that makes sense, but, you know, I think the shift towards the the possibility of solving the problem is way more empowering than the the. Possibility of the negative outcome, which is not solving the problem.
1: Uh, and and the two things. So we have a natural tendency to move away from uncomfortable stuff. That's, that's how we humans mm. are wired. We don't like conflict, we don't like uncomfortableness, we don't like mistakes. Uh, so it's our first response or first reaction actually to move away from it. So if you can dump it on somebody else, problem gone. Well, um, and the other thing is that over time in a culture, maybe there was also always a punitive way to look at mistakes. So I got leaders saying, oh, Monique, can we work on a strategy? I want my people to be more accountable. Oh, I said, oh, I'm, I'm, thank you for asking me for this challenge. Very excited. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, but I'm, I'm tasking their duties for today. It's like in sometimes in the same conversation. So I said, "Well, that's so interesting because now you keep track of the to-do list of your employees, but you said I want more accountability." So it's actually a, a, a trophic cascade. If you want to change something, it starts on the top of the food chain. It starts with you. So maybe if they saw that manager lashing out Because there was a customer complaining about the the not having hot soup. Um, That's because maybe in the last three weeks he's been shouted at because for making a mistake. Mm. Whatever happens, if if you, as a manager, don't self-regulate your responses in terms of conflict or failure, then people will make more mistakes eventually because it's going. Total different direction that you want because people become guarded, defended. Mm. Uh, they become afraid, and you know when somebody says, "Oh, don't drop that fast! Don't drop that fast! It's an antique fast." You're more likely to drop the fast anyway because you're so nervous of holding on or or breaking it. So by getting a sort of a culture in every team meeting, I always say to in management team meeting, address your people's moments. The people's moment—that is where. How are we doing? Really doing? Uh, and the other thing is, let's celebrate and acknowledge success, but also let's have like in our weekly meeting, let's talk about things that don't didn't go well. Mm. And for that waiter in a conversation with the customer, there's a basic understanding. If you want empathy in your customer experience, and I. I want companies to have that. Mm. When somebody yells at you because the soup is cold, you must understand that your customers don't understand your business. They only want to buy the product. So for a waiter, an easy way to say that, I'm sorry, you're disappointed. I'm sorry that you're having a stressful day. Um, you don't have to go into the hot super say that you have to climb ten stairs to bring it on. That's none of them. Because the customer only wants to buy it. Yeah. But in order to empower your staff to feel accountable, it starts by not you. Pre- you know, you can talk about mistakes, and sometimes there are tough discussions when you. You know, it doesn't have to be all sweet and 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 kind.
0: Yeah.
1: But creating a leadership style. Where it's normal to talk about human, where there is, and uh, you teach your people how to deal with conflict in the yeah. customer. If they know and they are sort of trained into work with more conflict and resolve conflict, they also are empowered to do better in that conflict.
0: It, it all it it kind of makes me think that the battle when the customer complains is actually already won or lost by how that staff member has been. Um, cultivated almost in in how to deal with fear or how to deal with a difficult situation. In other words, you know what they say there is just a function or a byproduct of how they've been made to feel for the preceding week or month. You know, it's just you know it's often just the straw that breaks the camel's back if that makes sense um, and how they react to that.
1: Companies need to start training people more on that side of the spectrum and then the techniques, obviously, but if we if we spend more time in training on being and getting that innate mastery, more into into being empowered and feeling grounded and especially also with all the challenges now with uh, transformation, Mm. it's all about, sometimes in my training, I tell people, um, your homework for today is when you go back to the bus station, to the taxi station, you have to look three strangers right in the eye. And they said, look, I can't do that. I said, no, go home, assignment. And they come back and they say, now, Nick, I was too scared. I looked at the ground I said, no, tomorrow's another day. And they come back. And then after three days, he said, I did it. And I said, what happened? Well, the first one, they were uh, thinking, oh, uh, what is happening? It felt intimate. But actually they noticed that people started making small talks to them. So this basic confidence of, you know, you can look up straight, you can look people in the eye, especially in unequal relationships, mm-hmm. when there is this, you know, you live a country uh, club membership lifestyle and you come from a disadvantaged background. and or um, So a lot of them at first, they always say, no, but I can't stand in somebody else's shoes. I said, well, I, I get why you say that. But if you look, empathy is a very equal relationship because in order to stand in somebody else's shoes, you need to stand in your own. Mm. And if you stand in your own, not about that you know what it's like when your jaguar is broken, that's not empathy. But if you know that we all have our human struggles that no matter if you're living in in a disadvantaged community without running water or you live in a country club lifestyle, you know what it's like when your Mm -hmm. child is sick Yeah, because we have the same emotions. Mm -hmm. And if you train people in clubs, in hospitality, specifically in hospitality, in service industry, to actually look at their customers from an equal perspective, that is so much empowerment, and that mm. is such a challenge on transformation yeah. for, for South Africa specifically to to grow empowerment and confidence. Absolutely. So, in training programs, I, I I think we must more focus on on that, and then when people are grounded and in, in feeling this confidence confidence in their core, then you can teach them anything because what will happen then is then they will apply that to on top of their confidence Mm. and then they will grow 10 20 30 times more and faster than by putting them in training after training after training
0: yeah absolutely i couldn't agree more you know so much so much training is skills focused trying to train people on a certain process but they're nowhere near the right mindset or heart set to to actually be in a space to take on that information or change their approach or all the things that come with needing to happen in order to change how they, how they, how they actually execute something. So, yeah, I, I think that there's slowly but surely I'm seeing a change in, in that type of approach, which is good. It, it delivers so much more benefit out of training. Um, but I think it's, you know, the last thing I wanted to, to touch on was this concept of, you know, there's an infinite game and there's an, there's a finite game and, and, one of the things that I see the progressive companies doing is that they don't see culture development, um, the, the input of, of empathy and emotional intelligence and heart, et cetera, as a, as a project. It's, a, it's an ongoing exercise. It's like feeding a human organism. You, you can't stop feeding it. You've got to, you know, it's a continual process. But it's difficult because I think a lot of people, a lot of companies still see it as something for HR to do. You know run a training program let's measure the success and then we we re, re-evaluate and i don't think that's a successful methodology in any shape or form
1: no it's it's exemplary exemplary behavior um, if you start doing it that's it's so interesting with empathy and self-regulation if a manager is known for as a hothead then it cascades down through the whole mm. uh, culture but the same thing happens if a manager or a leader of the company or a team is known for he's cool and collective and balanced. Then what will happen is in their team, nobody wants to be known as the hothead. So the positive change from positive behavior that's a really reinforcing mechanism. Mm. And I think that that whole um, reaching in and reaching out. I think that's quite a summary. Reaching in, it's becoming assessing on on those ABCs, assessing on inviting that growth mindset where it's actually welcoming for the unknown, uh, uh, welcoming to discuss failure, mistakes, learning. And and, and in an infinite mindset, this, this whole constantly learning and the hallmarks of resilient emotional intelligence leader is that they never stop learning. They constantly evolve, they celebrate their successes, uh, they celebrate small wins, but they also embrace failures. And uh, uh, an example, I think you know the example from previous talk we had uh, from Mercedes-Benz in Formula One, that they, they wanted to rule the world, they wanted to control like the market and mm. and get all the big wins in formula 1 and they started by relooking at their business leadership model and they started inviting small mistakes allow small mistakes to prevent big ones mm. and then they said well there is no room for complacency in this company and uh, if you see a problem it also automatically makes you accountable so see it you you say it and you repair it and I think that sums a bit up of all the things that we talked about. Mm. Yeah. Um, it really
0: does, and it, it speaks also to that thing of running towards responsibility, as a, as we spoke about earlier. You know, when you take that mentality, you make it your problem. You you know, you become a problem solver by by, very, by your very nature. So, it's a lovely way to wrap up, I think, because if if as as a leader, you can you can even start getting that somewhat into your into the way that your team yeah. thinks and behaves. Yeah you know, you really do create a far more effective, uh, resilient team across the board. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.